This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark, one justified, no belief, no debunking. Today, we're going to continue our examination of the Gulf Breeze Florida sightings, finishing up our discussion of Ed and Francis Walters' first book, The Gulf Breeze Sightings, and getting into the investigation of the case and some discoveries that were made. Now, if you haven't listened to our last episode where we began looking at the Gulf Breeze sightings, you might want to go back and start with that one. I'm not going to make you. I'm, I'm not your boss, but it might be to your benefit to start there before picking up with this episode. So the story so far, Ed Walters and his wife, Frances, had seen a number of flying saucers over or near their property in Gulf Breeze, Florida, near Pensacola. Ed, saying that he was delivering the photos on behalf of a mysterious Mr. X, gave the photos to the local weekly newspaper, the Gulf Breeze Sentinel. Other people began to send their UFO photos to the Sentinel, and UFO sightings became a sensation in Gulf Breeze. Now, Ed Walters was not just seeing UFOs. He was hearing humming noises and feeling sensations that sort of were precognitive warnings that the UFOs were coming. He was hearing messages from the UFOs. He was drawn to them. They called him Zehas, sort of a name for him. It's, it's a very strange story. And we left off with it being near Christmas, 1987, and a new witness writing in to the Gulf Breeze Sentinel. In the Christmas Eve 1987 edition of the Gulf Breeze Sentinel, the following letter appeared in its pages. Dear Editor, well, here it is. I, too, have to join the believers because I now have seen a UFO, three of them, right there on shoreline. I can't understand why nobody stopped as I did to watch them. I waved and pointed to everybody driving by, but nobody stopped. It was only about 5 or 5.30 p.m., just getting dark. I was heading east on shoreline, very close to where you can turn into the school in the north. Looked like over the high school. I saw three UFOs just over the line of sight of trees. I pulled over to the side of the road as other cars went on by. I watched for a minute or so and remembered that the kids had left a toy camera hotshot in the backseat floor. I had no idea how many shots were still left in it, if any. I have enclosed the camera with the pictures. It was better than nothing, and I got nine pictures. I could never get all three UFOs in the same shot, but the first three photos are shots of each. As they hovered around, I could no longer tell which was which. They were white at the bottom and when I first saw them, but as they came lower and I took the pictures, they became more orange. I started to run through the woods so I could get a closer shot, but as I did, and after shot number nine, all three of them began to glow bright white and disappeared straight up. There was no noise, no rockets blasting. They just went fast and were gone in maybe two seconds. If I remember right, 
The UFO in the paper last month looked like these. I'm not going to be hypnotized and all that crazy stuff, so here are the photos. The experts can claim what they want, claim their trick photos, but I like to see somebody take a trick photo with this toy camera. I'll keep the negs for my grandkids. As you can see, it got darker and darker as I took the pictures, but from the beginning to end, it was maybe 8 to 10 minutes. Signed, Believer Bill. The editor's reply to Bill is interesting. It says the Sentinels having our UFO photos analyzed by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. If you could send two more sets of photos or one negative to us, it would be most beneficial to the investigation. Well, it probably would be. At the same time this is going on, Ed and Francis are continuing to have sightings, and others are having sightings as well on their property. On December 27, 1987, the eighth sighting took place. A witness saw a UFO at the Walters' house. This was Patrick, a college student, a friend of Walters' son. And uh, Ed says, over the years, we'd all grown close to Patrick. He no doubt knows he is always welcome. Many of the, and this is in quotes, games that Francis and I organized for the teenagers have Patrick as a key participant. These these games, these sort of things that that the Walters sort of arrange for the young people, some of this is going to come out and it's it's going to sort of speak to Walters's credibility down the road. Now, there, there's nothing sort of salacious or, or inappropriate here, but Ed had a reputation with the kids as a fun-loving guy. Patrick, this friend of their sons, sees the, uh, the UFO. And the interesting thing for Ed is that usually only Ed sees these UFOs, even when they're, they're big and, and, and fairly low in the sky and in a place where you would think everybody around would see them. Why is suddenly Patrick able to see it? The UFO had allowed Francis to see it. Now, for some reason, maybe accident, Patrick had seen it. Does the UFO know when I'm alone or can it somehow read my mind? Does it know when others are watching? Did the UFO allow Patrick to see it? Ed is creating a kind of narrative about why the UFOs show up. Like they have a connection to him and him alone. They aren't for everybody to see. But maybe sometimes people like Patrick can see them accidentally. But otherwise, the UFOs have to want to be seen. Now, we're not going to go through every sighting that Ed and Francis talk about in their book. And we're going to jump ahead to January of 1988, January 12th, 1988. This is the 10th sighting. He calls it the road shot. By this time, Ed was working with MUFON, particularly MUFON investigator Don Ware, who was local there to Florida. And Ed had been assured that MUFON would keep his identity a secret, which was very important to him as a businessman and member of the community. Remember, he called himself Mr. X, or he pretended the photos were from Mr. X when he took them to the newspaper. Now, during this uh, this sighting on uh, in January 1987, he was driving down the road and a bright white light from a UFO startles him. It is chasing him. He's reaching for the shotgun behind the truck seat, but he doesn't know if he can get it. He abandons the shotgun and then tr goes for his camera, taking more photos of the UFO. He decides to stop the truck and get out. When I looked forward down the road, the UFO wasn't there. I was halfway under the truck when it hit again. Flash, my legs stung and went numb from the knees down. I dug into the grass with my elbows and finally managed to make it to where my head was below the oil pan. Again, looking forward, I saw the UFO hovering once more above the road. I tried to get the camera lined up on the UFO, but the truck was too low to allow my elbows enough room to hold the camera upright. 
I took another shot, and the UFO slowly began to rotate. Then came the hum really loud. A voice. You are in danger. We will not harm you. Come forward. As I think back now, I remember that these instructions made no sense. You are in danger. Come forward. No way. They were going to have to drag me out from under the truck. A blue beam flashed from the UFO to the road. Five times it shot down. Each blue beam deposited a creature on the road close to the UFO. I began to yell obscenities. I wasn't yelling at them or myself, but just out of shock. Each time a creature was left standing there, I yelled. Each one stood waiting and was joined by the next. Finally, all five began to move in lockstep toward me. Each one had a silver rod. They moved the rods up and down in their right hands as they marched down the middle of the road. They were 200 feet from me, and I knew I could not stay under the truck. I started backing out, thinking that the creatures would be on me at any moment. When I stumbled into the driver's seat, they were about halfway from the UFO. They didn't seem to be in a big hurry, but I was. I threw the truck into reverse and backed across the road. Finally, without looking back, I fled. Ed and Francis claimed that the next day, the day after this encounter, two officials from the Air Force Special Security Services, Agent McCarthy, and um, the other one, was the other one given a name? No, I think just Agent McCarthy and somebody else demanded the photographs and negatives, which Ed claimed he no longer had because he gave them to, um, you know, they weren't his. They were Mr. X's and uh, the newspaper had them. And so they claimed they were harassed by these Air Force special security things. And Francis particularly took great offense to this. The episode with the Air Force agents left me wondering just whom we could trust. A staunch conservative, I didn't like to think that our government would treat its citizens in such a high-handed manner. Now, Francis does go on to talk about speculation that the agents weren't agents at all, but were people trying to discourage them or even people from rival UFO organizations that wanted to screw with MUFON in one way or another. And if you remember our um, – oh, gosh, I think it was the um, – I can't remember which episode it was, but it was a, a one of the Brad Steiger books we talked about at some point where, where there was this sort of epidemic of, of people claiming to be – Brad Steiger or John Keel sort of treating people badly and, and speculation that government agents or, or other organizations might be doing something like that. So generally various types of chicanery taking place in the UFO world really to no one's surprise or at least there shouldn't be any surprise if you've been listening to The Saucer Life for a while. Then on January 17th, the investigation takes a a, a turn takes a, a a step as Walter H. Andrus Jr. arrives on the scene. He is the international director of the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, in January of 1988. And he issues a statement after talking to Ed, issues a statement to the Gulf Breeze Sentinel saying that the that MUFON, or at least that he is the international director of MUFON, has visited Ed, visited Gulf Breeze, and believes the photos to be authentic. Now, even though Andrus does not reveal uh, Ed Walters' identity, because Ed did not want his identity out there yet, he says he has met with the witness and believes him to be credible, believes him to be sincere, and believes him to be entirely forthcoming about what he has seen. The photographs have been examined by MUFON experts and are found to be 
completely reliable and Andrus has thrown his full support and kind of by extension, at least at this point, the support of MUFON behind the Mixter X photos or the Ed Walters photos as we know them to be. Strange things continue to happen to the Walterses and or the Walters. Yeah, the Walterses. Let's be plural about it. The Walterses and um, and other people in the area have UFO sightings as well that are reported in the newspapers at the time. One of the strange things that happens to the Walters family is that a dark helicopter circles their house. So 1988, we're kind of early for the uh, the black helicopter craze, but uh, but it happens to the Walterses, or they say it happens. I, it, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. They they allege it, they witness a helicopter they claim a helicopter I, I don't want to make them sound I don't want to make it sound like I'm like I think they're making it up they claim there was a black helicopter circling their house so on July July January twenty fourth nineteen eighty eight there was another uh, encounter that Walters had and this was uh, alongside Dwayne Cook of the Gulf Breeze Sentinel and this one was videotaped which is pretty interesting and this is how Ed describes the encounter and the the censored obscenities in here are censored in the book so I will sort of censor them I will I will do this we'll present it as it is written Suddenly my heart raced and I knew something was going to happen. I eased the truck over to the side of the road, at the same time calling out, If you're going to do it, come on! Okay, 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 come on! The hum grew louder and I warned Dwayne once again that he might be in trouble. Then I stepped out of the truck. I was in the middle of the road. I was exposed. Dwayne also got out, still filming me, but stayed close to the truck as I paced back and forth across the road. Okay, I'm ready. Here I am. Again, I called to Dwayne to be careful, and he responded, Don't worry about me. My stomach cramped, and I yelled, F*** this. I want out of my life, Dwayne. They're here. Come on, SOB. Let's do it. My left hand burst with pain. Then a crushing pain rushed from my right forehead across my chest and down my left arm and leg. I was driven to the ground and screamed to Dwayne, They're here, Dwayne. They're here. They were using my own nervous system to hurt me. I screamed again, wanting them to do whatever they had come for. I'm not going to do this again. This is it. I'm not going out like this anymore. You better do it. I'm not going to do this again. Come on. Come on, SOB. The hum ceased and in a moment stopped. I was still standing in the road. The misty rain wet me, causing me to shiver. I walked back to the truck. Dwayne had already climbed back in because it was beginning to rain a little harder. When I opened the door, I could see he was still filming. I was disappointed that we hadn't filmed the UFO, but maybe the torment and that strong surge of pain had ended the hum. Maybe the connection was broken. I glanced up across the sky and announced that I would not be back. Suddenly, about 200 feet behind Dwayne and maybe six feet high, the UFO winked into view. I yelled, oh, oh, there it is. I jerked the camera up to my face, but I didn't line up the viewfinder on the UFO. I never saw the UFO through the camera. I just aimed in the general direction and hit the trigger. The flash went off for photo 21. When I lowered the camera, there was nothing in the sky. The UFO was gone. Regardless of what you feel about the UFO photos or UFO photos in general or UFOs in general, I think you have to admit that Ed Walters writes a compelling kind of ufo encounter story i mean i probably had a little too much fun doing that but the thing is this was videotaped this was all recorded so we should be able to see it or somebody should be able to see it or we should be able to at least have some way to test what happened fortunately we have 
a report from somebody who did see the videotape, and that somebody is Mr. Jim Mosley of Saucer Smear, who was a section director for Monroe County, Florida at the time in the late 1980s. And in his memoir, Shockingly Close to the Truth, Confessions of a Grave Robbing Ufologist, Mosley describes going down to, or rather up from where he was in Key West, up to Gulf Breeze to talk to Ed and Francis Walters in December 1988. And what's interesting, as Mosley tells it, he he didn't know about the videotape. He didn't know about any of that. And Ed says, I suppose you want to see the videotape. And Mosley's like, oh, yes, the videotape. I would like to see it, thinking, what videotape? What is he talking about? So Walters sends his his 15-year-old daughter to her room because he, he doesn't want her to hear the profanity. And then Mosley says, thus it was that I became one of a very few to see the entire 45 minutes or so of this amazing quote, evidence, which Ed soon wisely decided to suppress. The motif of this amazing production is less UFO and more demon or evil entity possession. Ed is driving his truck while Cook is videotaping him from the passenger seat. Ed keeps cursing a blue streak wildly and excessively. He babbles on about how the entities and space beings are attacking him psychically, that he can feel it, that his face is contorted with one eye being pushed out and on and on. I almost laughed out loud when he asked Cook, isn't my face contorted? And Cook replied, no, Ed, you look about the same as you always do. Finally, Ed stops the truck, quickly gets out Polaroid in hand, and snaps a picture of a UFO. Cook is slower to leave the truck, and by the time Ed can point out the UFO, the thing's gone. Ed then shows Cook the photo he seemingly just took. And by what I call saucer logic, Cook declares that because he saw Ed take the picture, that proves a UFO is actually there at least for a brief moment. Here again, I had to suppress an almost overwhelming urge to laugh my head off. Mosley would go on to claim that, according to one of his sources, or a friend of one of his trusted sources, that Ed and Dwayne had a pretty good time laughing about the video they made afterwards, and that it wasn't really intended to be serious at all, but sort of a joke, sort of jokey, hoaxy, funny sort of thing. Mosley argues that nobody who has actually seen the video could possibly take Ed Walters' claims seriously, although he points out that um, that that researcher and person who uh, verified the photos, Bruce Maccabee, does take the video seriously. Mosley offsets that uh, that claim and that assertion that the video is real that Maccabee has against the amount of money Maccabee received for lending his expertise to the Walters's book. We're getting into the realm of UFO might just as well stand for unprecedented financial opportunity here as we expected we would. And it will get more financially opportune as the story goes on. At this point, the the book really goes into there's more sightings, but there's a lot of stuff about cameras and a lot of stuff about Experts like Bruce Maccabee verifying the the truth of the photos and arguments about whether or not uh, Walters could have been using double exposure to create these photos because the model of old Polaroid camera he was using was capable of double exposures. Now, I'm a sort of photo guy, so I know what a double exposure is, but I realize that that some people out there might not if they're not sort of of film camera age, although – at least our statistics on Spotify seem to indicate that many of you listening are old enough to remember film cameras, which means you're cool. So a double exposure is when you expose the film by 
taking a picture and then you don't wind the film. You don't change where the film is in, in a Polaroid. You don't eject the film and allow it to develop. You take another picture. So you can take a picture of one thing and then move and take a picture of something else. And those two images are on the same frame, one superimposed on the other. I, uh, the other day, put up a multiple exposure picture that I took um, on film because it's, it's sort of possible on film still easily. And I put that on, on, on social media so you could see what a multiple exposure is like. And, and hopefully, by the time you hear this, I won't have forgotten to put that picture up. But in any case, from my point of view, the book starts to get boring at this point. We have fewer exciting uh, exciting sightings and encounters and more. This MUFON person said this, then MUFON gave me this kind of camera to try. Then somebody in the park recognized me and revealed that I was the UFO photographer and they called me Mr. Ed and some debunkers show up and skeptics show up and there's debates and it all gets kind of boring because this is Ed Walters's book. So you're not going to get an even handed account of an investigation and, and how this was done. You're going to get the evil debunkers tried to say we were hoaxers, but then Dr. Maccabee used his optical physics knowledge to prove that we were truth tellers and, and, and things like that. So it kind of bogs down a little bit. The final encounter will take place in May of 1988, but in uh, in January and February, he had a, a couple of other encounters. There's one where he runs outside to uh, to confront the UFO wearing nothing but a towel, and this is photo number 23 in the book, and I will put this up on um, social media as well, these two pictures I'm talking about here, and um, or not social media. They'll be at the website. Go to the link in the show notes to the uh, the website and there will be those those pictures there so what you see is you see ed walters in a towel just a white towel both his fists raised in ire and the ufo in the distance that was january a, a couple weeks later february 7th uh, the, the ufo shows up fires off the blue beam and francis was in the way of the beam and she barely dodges out of the way um and uh, jumps through the kitchen door into the house and avoids the blue beam. And there's a picture of her sort of looking like she's sort of cringing away from this blue beam that's shining down. And again, it looks it looks very stagey, looks very, um, very fake to me. Honest, um, honestly, I'm, I'm going to be kind of judgmental and uh, and skeptical and say these pictures do not look terribly authentic. As we get to the end of the book, we've got a lengthy appendix by Bruce Maccabee going photo by photo of his analysis, which I'll be honest, if you want to buy the book and read that, that's awesome and you might find it very interesting. I don't think in an audio format, it would be great to sort of talk about what he sees in the photos, which would involve me describing each photo to you. I do not think that is a wise use of any of our time, but the final end of the book in Appendix 3 comes with a position statement from MUFON and uh, – well, not MUFON, from MUFON State – Florida State Director Don Ware. As MUFON State Director, living only 44 miles from Gulf Breeze, I have helped coordinate the activities of seven local investigators and three internationally known investigators of the many UFO reports in this area. 
there have been at least 68 reports of objects that, after various amounts of investigation, we have not been able to identify as either naturally produced or made by man. These include 135 witnesses, of which four reported alien beings, six reported blue beams, and nine reported periods of missing time suggesting abductions. Over 60 UFO photographs have been taken. I'm convinced that these sightings are proof of alien visitation. The level of technology demonstrated indicates they can come and go at will and can reside in a variety of places. The bottoms of our oceans, inside major high-altitude ice fields, in Earth orbit, on the moon, on Mars, etc. One might ask why one couple in Gulf Breeze has been allowed 18 photographic sessions. The most obvious reason to me is the aliens want people to see the photographs. I hope this causes more people to give serious thought to the idea that we, as an intelligent species, are not alone in the universe. Now, some of these things are compelling. I think the number of witnesses in the Gulf Breeze area is compelling. I I think that's very interesting. I think it's interesting that people other than Ed Walters, we believe, took photographs. There's some debate about that, as we're going to see. But to say that aliens from outer space is the most obvious explanation for what's going on seems like a stretch. And just to put my cards on the table a little bit, just because people see something that cannot be explained doesn't mean that the explanation is aliens. I don't think that is an outrageously skeptical debunking position to take i i don't know now he mentioned internationally known experts one of these internationally known experts who arrived on the scene was none other than abduction researcher bud hopkins and his visit in february of 1988 was reported on by the gulf breeze sentinel edited by Dwayne cook who helped videotape ed walters not having any physical reaction showing on his face to the aliens, at least as far as Jim Mosley was concerned. The headline in the Gulf Breeze Sentinel said, Famous UFO author visits Gulf Breeze, comma, believes sightings are authentic. And Hopkins had this to say. The credibility of the pictures and the photographer should not be questioned. The fact that the photos are clear, detailed, and contain so much information that can be validated shows they are authentic. The abundance of sightings and witnesses is of such a magnitude as to render the orchestration of a hoax highly unlikely. They should not be questioned. The credibility and the photographer, the credibility of the pictures and photographer should not be questioned. Okay, okay, bud. Sure. Why not? You're an abduction researcher. That, of course, makes you an expert on photography. Right. But uh, Bud Hopkins would, would go on to be a, a, a staunch supporter of um, of the uh, of the Gulf Breeze sightings and, and of Ed Walters. The caption under his picture says, for 12 years, Bud Hopkins has been a skeptical, <laughs> skeptical and meticulous researcher or investigator of UFO reports. As a painter and sculptor, he has, of course, become an expert on photo photographic analysis. I made that up. As a painter and sculptor, he has received many awards around the world. He's been at the Guggenheim, blah, blah, blah. He's skeptical and meticulous. I don't think anybody would call Bud Hopkins skeptical. Um, that's not a slight on him. It's, it's just I think it's the wrong word for it. And this is kind of a gushing caption. But uh, the Gulf Breeze Sentinel seems to be a, a fairly pro-UFO rag at the time. So we're at a point here where we have sort of gone through the Walters' book. 
MUFON has investigated and and Walt Andrus is behind it. The state director's behind it. But Hopkins is behind it. They're all standing up for the authenticity of the um, of the Ed Walters photos. So what happens when the book comes out and this becomes even more of a media sensation? We're going to take a look at that after the break. Next time, it's going to be our third and final part of the Ed Walters, Francis Walters, Gulf Breeze sightings experience. It's a rare three-parter, although it's the second three-parter this year, so maybe not so rare. Keep the feedback and questions about Gulf Breeze coming. We'll have a, a sort of bonus bumper sort of listener feedback about Gulf Breeze thing when all this is wrapped up. If you like The Saucer Life and want more, you can support us in exchange for bonus content from both this show and our other uh, show, Great Lakes Lore. You can check that out at patreon.com slash chizomedia, that's C-H-E-E-S-O media, or a little easier, uh, click the link in the show notes, Google Saucer Life Patreon, uh, that'll all get you there in various ways. You can check out past episodes at Saucer Life or your favorite saucerlife.com rather or your favorite podcasting app. And as always, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life. You can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com or contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. And now let's take a look at what happened after this book came out. Okay, so I lied. Well, not lied, but maybe wasn't entirely clear with what I wanted to do. The book, let me get the title right, The Gulf Breeze Sightings by Ed and Francis Walters came out in early 1990, the first few months of 1990. So what I've done is I've called up a huge number of stories, most of which are in, and I, then I got rid of the ones that weren't interesting, stories from the Pensacola, Florida news journal from 1990 into oh let me move my mouse over here into uh into 1993 so the first few years after this book was out pensacola gulf breeze was a suburb of pensacola and so the pensacola news journal a little more of a traditional daily newspaper uh unlike the the gulf breeze sentinel so what was the in quotes, big city reaction to what was going on in Gulf Breeze at the time, because this was going to be a sensation and it was going to bring a lot of attention to this, this town in the panhandle. So let's take a look on a journey. Let's have a journey through the Pensacola News Journal in the early 1990s. And the way I'm doing it like this and, and what this does is it tells the story as it would have been seen through the eyes of the general non-UFO public. And I wanted to see how the controversies and the debate over Walters' sightings and other UFO sightings in the area, how that was handled in, in the wider media, not in the pages of the MUFON Journal or in Mosley's Saucer Smear newsletter or in, in saucer-centric things because you can sort of imagine what the saucerish 
sort of take would be. What is the take of people just writing news stories for a living about what's going on in their community with this UFO story that has burst onto the scene after percolating on a local level for a while? Now there's a a massive new book from a major publisher and MUFON is is doing symposiums and, and meetings in the area. How does all this play out on the ground in Pensacola in the early 90s? The first article that caught my eye was in the February 17th issue of the News Journal. This is uh, an article, Readers Tell of Pensacola's Pride, comma, Joy. Basically, what is it about Pensacola that you would highlight to people to get them to come to Pensacola? And most things are like the high school drama class and um, you know, other things like that. And apparently, this is about Good Morning America on ABC coming to uh, see Pensacola and highlight things. One item is interesting. Patricia Weatherford, the program chair for the local MUFON chapter, says that Ed Walters should be featured on Good Morning America because he has amassed a collection of photos of flying saucers. So it's not just UFO buffs who are into the UFOs and Gulf Breeze. It regularly shows up in the newspaper. And there are there are ads. There are ads there was an ad earlier in February where, where basically there was a photo store picture developing place that said it, it's where the, the aliens come to get their UFO photos you know, developed. So it's become kind of a meme in Pensacola in, uh, in 1990, especially once, once the book comes out. And it, it does come out in, in February, March, because by March, there are, uh, there are uh, book signings going on. The March 2nd, 1990 issue of the Pensacola News Journal says that Ed and Francis are signing their book at Heron King Bookstore in Harbortown in Gulf Breeze from noon to 5 p.m. And it talks about the book a little bit. So they're out there. They're in the public. It's becoming news beginning in February and March of 1990. Not just the sightings being news, but the Walters account and their book becomes a popular, consistent news item. In the March, uh, March 11th, 1990 issue of the News Journal, there is a number of articles. Uh, Gulf Breeze UFOs, Science or Fiction, Observers, Seeing is Believing. And these articles are by uh, Bill DiPaolo and Craig Myers. And Craig Myers would go on to be sort of the, the, the News Journal's point person on the the Ed Walters and the UFO stories in Gulf Breeze. And, and this is an extensive pair of articles about not just the Gulf Breeze sightings, not just Ed Walters' Gulf Breeze sightings, but other sightings that took place in the area in 1987, 1988, into 1989. And also, you know, an extensive look at some of the other famous sightings around the world from the 1940s to the present. Most of the article, not all the article, but most of the article is a, a sort of brief rundown of the Walters' sightings. But there's also news of what's coming in the summer. It says this. UFO Conference, Mutual UFO Network, a UFO investigations group that claims 2,500 worldwide members, is having its annual conference in July in Gulf Breeze. ET director Steven Spielberg has been invited to be a guest speaker, although it is not known whether he will attend. About 450 others are expected at the convention, said Sheila Bowman, convention and tourism director for Pensacola. So as far as the news coverage goes in the Pensacola News Journal, part of the interest and part of maybe, I don't know if motivation is the right word, is that UFOs are going to be a moneymaker for the Florida panhandle come July 
1990 because the MUFON conference, it's, it's big money. As far as I know, Steven Spielberg did not accept that invitation. So also in this article, we hear from UFO investigator, MUFON investigator Rex Salisbury who's a person you're going to be hearing more about in a little bit. He's a retired pilot, 60 years old at the time. He confirmed that between 1989 and 1989 to 1990, he had investigated 25 UFO sightings. Uh, At the time, in in March of 1990, he is personally uh, got six separate UFO cases on the docket in just in the Pensacola area. He said Northwest Ohio was a a hotspot for UFO activity. And MUFON International Director Walt Andrus had this to say. Maybe it's the multiple air bases in the area. We have reason to believe in the past 40 years, areas with sensitive military bases have had a predominance of UFO sightings. Andrus backs this up with the example of, in 1990, five UFO landings being reported by personnel at Kirtland Air Base, Air Force Base, rather, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hmm, early 80s in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We might have to do an episode about some of those things sometime. And it isn't just Gulf Breeze. It's the entire panhandled northern Gulf Shore region. Uh, There was a town of 1,300 people, Fife, Alabama, in northeast Alabama. It's not just on the coast. They had over 100 sightings in March and February, or February and March, I guess, 1989. But Dwayne Cook, who publishes the Gulf Breeze Sentinel, as we heard last time and was there videotaping uh, Ed Walters, says that Gulf Breeze is a more credible community for sightings than uh, than Fife, Alabama. This credibility comes from its professionals and retired military residents. So if you're a professional or retired military, you are automatically, apparently, a more credible UFO witness than I don't know, just somebody from Alabama. And this is a little telling. Um, according to uh, according to this article, the newspaper, that is the Gulf Breeze Sentinel, has sold 500 packages of copies of the UFO Sentinel stories documenting 77 UFO sightings since 1987. Now, I'm not saying the reporting might have been motivated by the possibility of selling collections of UFO articles to people, but... You- might just as well stand for unprecedented financial opportunity. I just have a feeling that clip is going to be getting kind of a workout during the rest of this episode. Now, this reporting from Bill DiPaolo and Craig Myers was was popular with some people. Charles Flanagan, the Florida State Director of MUFON in uh, 1990 on the March 30th issue of the Pensacola News Journal, writes a letter to the editor saying that DiPaolo and Myers are to be commended for their objective reporting that thousands of people in Escambia and Santa Rosa counties have had their lives touched by UFO sightings and or encounters with aliens. Some of these people are experiencing recurring contact. And the letter ends with a pitch to come to their monthly meeting and join MUFON, of course. Always be closing. Within the next month, more people had been seeing UFOs in 1990. This is, again, a couple years after the wave of sightings that involved the Walters. There's another front page story by Craig Myers in the April 22nd, 1990 issue of the News Journal. Dozens of people this month have reported seeing a glowing red light moving slowly but steadily over Pensacola Bay and the Gulf Breeze Peninsula several thousand feet in the air, said Rex Salisbury, a retired pilot and investigator for the Mutual UFO Network. 
He said eight such sightings have been reported since April 10th, but it didn't show up Friday for the hundreds who were waiting, many with still and video cameras and binoculars. Salisbury and other MUFON investigators said they haven't ruled out the possibility that the recent UFO sighting is a hoax, a light or a flare attached to a balloon, glider, kite, or radio-controlled object. A spokesman for the Pensacola Naval Air Station said radar had not picked up anything unusual in recent weeks. Ed Walters of Gulf Breeze, author of The Gulf Breeze Sightings, released in February, has been on hand at many of the latest gatherings to watch the sky and talk about UFOs. He said he has seen the red light twice and thinks it is the same object as in one of his later photographs. Now, there are some skeptics who have some issues with this, and and these are skeptics who'd been sort of dogging Ed Walters every step of the way. Uh, One of them um, is Zan Overall of Redondo, California, and the other is Dr. Willie Smith of Altamonte Springs. And both of them were not happy that Walters was involved with the recent sightings. They said they have no evidence of a hoax, but the sightings can only increase Walters' book sales and boost interest in the upcoming MUFON convention. Not surprisingly, Walters disagrees. A lot of people are saying just because I've seen it on September 12th, January 8th, and last Wednesday that it's invalid, Walter said Friday night as he joined other UFO watchers at the foot of the Bay Bridge. I don't need to promote the book. It is selling hand over fist. Walter said he received a $200,000 cash advance from William Morrow Publishing for the book. He said the book is going into its third printing. Walter said ABC is offering him $450,000 to turn the story into a miniseries in 1991. Oh, you know what's coming. You know what's coming so well, I don't need to play it again. But just imagine Jane Pauley's voice in your head, as I often do for some reason. There was also some suspicion that this red light phenomenon could be some kind of hoax because many of the people who witnessed it were MUFON members or, according to the newspaper, quote, frequent UFO sighters. But investigator Rex Salisbury said there was numerous other witnesses who were not MUFON members or frequent repeat UFO witnesses who had seen the same thing, but they did not want to come forward publicly for fear of ridicule. In the April 29th issue of the News Journal, there is another front page story by Craig Myers about this time about the continuing criticisms and skepticism of the Ed Walters photographs. At the center of this controversy are some photos, not of UFOs, but of ghosts that um, that Walters claimed to have taken using a double exposure sort of trick photography technique. And skeptics said that he could have used these same types of techniques to fake some of the photos that were in his book. In May of 1990, the National UFO Conference, um, which is not the same as the MUFON Conference, this is a, a different conference, uh, was held and in um, in Miami Beach. And Ed Walters was one of the uh, one of the participants in the National UFO Conference. According to an Associated Press story in the May 13th, 1990 issue of the Pensacola News Journal, Walters was not happy about things that were going on. On Friday morning, Walters was miffed. He was unhappy about a newspaper report quoting a non-believer. This debunker, Walters said, claimed Walters had boasted he was levitated, asked to disrobe, and examined by aliens. Not true, says Walters, who has attracted several debunkers in recent weeks. This is what really happened, said Walters. He saw a spacecraft, moved closer, and, quote, was struck by a blue beam, end quote. Later, he also lost one hour and 15 minutes of time and sighted four foot-tall beings in silver spacesuits. If someone wants to conclude I was on a spaceship, that's their prerogative, Walters said. 
this is kind of a, a typical UFO advocate technique to to sort of say this debunker is completely misrepresenting what I said, and then you know proceeds to correct it in such a way that is that is so narrow that you're you're really kind of splitting hairs. Maybe he wasn't literally on a spaceship, but he was pulled up by the blue beam. So yes, he claimed to be levitating in a way. In the run-up to the July 6th MUFON Symposium in Gulf Breeze, there were other articles in the Pensacola News Journal about how much business in hotels and restaurants and merchants that the conference would be bringing to the city, despite the fact that it's a controversial subject. Um, Hotels are filling up fast. Entrepreneurs are making t-shirts, towels, maps, jewelry, all based on sort of UFO style themes. UFO might just as well stand for unprecedented financial opportunity. And then, that's the last time we'll hear Jane Pauley, I think, don't worry. And then, the June 17th, 1990 issue of the Pensacola News Journal, front page, Craig Myers, headline, I saw UFO photos faked, witness says. Walters' most recent critic, a 22-year-old former Gulf Breeze resident, told authorities he saw Walters create UFO photos by using double exposures. The man, who asked to remain anonymous, said Walters made models from styrofoam plates. He said Walters lighted the model by shining a flashlight into it through a PVC pipe painted black and taped to the model. Walters took a photograph of the lighted model in a darkened room with a black background, he said. Next, Walters went outside and exposed the model for a second time in the sky, making it appear to be in the air, said the source who made a statement Friday to Gulf Breeze officials and news media. This young person was also present when Walters made the ghost photos with double exposures at a party with him and other kids at their house. Walters, of course, responded that these these accusations were ridiculous. And why didn't the boy come forward sooner? The boy, calling himself Chris, um, his father said that he told Chris, the witness, in 1987 not to get involved. For two years, they were reluctant to come forward for fear of hurting the people involved. But by 1990, Chris's father and Chris decided that things had gone too far. Chris said that he had been present when some of these pictures had been made, but the question is, what about this model? What what proof is there that Ed Walters made a model? A model matching the description was found at Walters' former residence at 612 Silverthorne Road earlier this month by the current resident who was searching the attic for a water pipe. The model was found under some insulation. Ed would deny he made the model, not just to the newspaper, but also in other areas of the media. And he was getting out in the media to tell his story, especially now that the uh, the, the debunkers and the skeptics had started to come after him. On June 20th, 1990, he appeared with Chuck Harder on the For the People radio program. How could you prove when the model was fabricated? Uh, there was um, clues in the fabrication material of the model. Uh, it was fabricated, and then people then they put some drafting paper that they took from my garbage uh, inside this thing to further incriminate me. But 
what they didn't realize is that I was able to take that drafting uh, blueprint paper and check back and find out what house, what, I'm a builder, what house it came from, and then therefore determine when that paper, when that was actually drawn, when it was uh, produced. And it was actually produced on September the 6th and the 7th of 1989, and I have the uh, sworn letters from the people that I drew the drawings for. See, I discarded the drawings, and they were picked up out of the garbage, and they used them to make this model. So now we've proven irrefutably that this model was a fake that was planted in this house. And now the question comes up, okay, now we know somebody's out there faking this stuff. Question is, who is it and what is their uh, motive? It's pretty darn obvious to me. They want to discredit UFOs at all costs. So the model contains materials that Ed claims are from 1989, so... This could not have been in his photographs because his photographs were from 1987 and 1988. So how did this fake hoax, false flag UFO model end up in this house? That's what radio host Chuck Harder wants to know. Now, also, I understand from my calls to the area that you did uh, or that the house was open to the public for a while, was it not? Right, for 10 months for sale. Okay, so theoretically, anybody could have gone in the house, right? Uh, crawled up the stairs and uh, put it in the attic. Sure. During a ten-month period. Exactly. That's what that's what I'm sure happened. And once we uh, now have uh, dated uh, when the model was made as being uh, September the sixth or seventh of 1989, it's uh, quite clear that uh, somebody has uh, you know fabricated this fake model and, and went up in there and planted it, hoping that the present owner would find it, which he did. Uh, I hadn't lived in the house for a year and a half. It's, it's absolutely ludicrous to think that I would uh, fabricate a model here where I live now and then carry it to a house that I used to live in and, and, and hide it in <laughs> It's just ludicrous. Now, in various places, Ed Walters would claim that the, the model was in the garage. Um, turns out it was actually in a very inaccessible place, and the owner found it when he was sort of digging around back in the studs trying to find the water shut off to the little you know water line that goes to the ice maker in the uh, refrigerator freezer. So it wasn't really in as obvious a place. Somebody couldn't have just like stopped by, ducked in, and, and, and quietly put this model somewhere. Now, what about some specific skeptics, including in the 1980s and 90s, probably the uber skeptic in American ufology? What do you say about uh, a guy like Phil Class, who says that you are a hoax? Well, I say that Phil Class uh, says that any UFO sighting uh, is either explainable or a hoax. I mean, there's nothing unusual about what Phil Class says. Now, lucky for us, and lucky for Ed, I don't know, maybe not lucky for Ed, but lucky for the American viewing public, Ed was actually able to come face-to-face with Phil Class on an episode of Oprah Winfrey's television show in in 1990, I believe. Um, the clip I was able to find of it on YouTube did not have a date attached to it, and I wasn't able to track down a date. I didn't have a chance to do that. So... In addition to being on Chuck Harder's radio program defending his claims, Ed Walters was also on the Oprah Winfrey show, which was very different back in 1990 in its uh, in its earlier years. Much more a stereotypical TV talk show in format, including you know interviews with people like 
Ed Walters. Now, in talking to Oprah, Ed kind of downplayed some of his stranger experiences that he wrote about in the book. He said, I had some very strange experiences. She asked if he was abducted, and he kind of hems and haws about that. So we go to Phil Class, who was sitting up on the stage, to provide some insight. Uh, I say that Ed claims in his book that he gets ESP messages that they show him photographs of nude women, not pictures of nude women, but actual nude women. He claims to have been abducted, and in fact, the mayor of his own town, Ed Gray III, has denounced this case as a hoax. I agree that for I've many been, I've never said that I've been abducted. I said- You have never I said have that? Never Reread said, I have your never, book. quote, read my lips. I have never said that I've been abducted. Oh, that read my lips line is so sort of cringily dated now, isn't it? Um, if you don't remember the uh, presidential campaign of 1988, kids, ask your parents about the read my lips line. So Ed is is very much trying to to you know again, it's kind of split hairs. I wasn't abducted. What, because you pulled away from the magic blue beam before they could suck you up into the spaceship? Uh, it, it's it gets a little a little strange. But somebody in the audience has been paying attention to the news. There was a thing on the on the news about that guy, and there was a, a about Ed Ed Walters, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. About a little cardboard model of a spaceship that they found in the wall of a house that he lived in, and this kid was on there saying that he'd hired him to take lights and do it, and they showed her and I both saw it. Mm-hmm. They showed how they could make they could do the video thing of it and make it look like it was a real thing. Well, if he's out there doing it, sure, 200 people are going to see it. I mean, they had the little cardboard model with all the little holes and the little booster thing on the bottom and everything else, and they found it in the wall of his house. Yeah. Okay, what do you say to that, Phil? Uh, I have examined the model. It... It is made from a vellum drawing that has Ed Walter's handwriting on it. Okay. Ed, go ahead, Phil. Fine. Go ahead, finish talking. Well, Ed claims that that drawing was not made until 1989. The investigation by the mayor shows, well, this was the the, uh, photo that Ed likes to compare with the model is actually a third generation UFO model. Okay, can you get a shot of this on the monitor? Oh, yeah. you got it over But this model, if you think that this model looks anything like, if you think this model looks anything like the photographs of what the people around Gulf Breeze are seeing, then you need to have some glasses. Uh, the, the prank that was pulled by putting a model in a house that I used to live in a year and a half ago mm-hmm. was an effort by whomever to discredit the sightings. And it shows me that there is a very definite cover-up going on trying to make this phenomenon go away. Phil Class there in that that first clip mentioned that uh, Gulf Breeze Mayor Ed Gray had denounced the case. And indeed he did in the June 20th, 1990 issue of the Pensacola News Journal. In a Viewpoint article op-ed piece, Mayor Ed Gray says in the headline, Ed Walters perpetrating UFO hoax. How does he know this? Well, the young witness has come forward. He was suspicious from the beginning, but he's got more information. I am writing this article while en route back from meeting an accomplice to Ed Walters. He has been conclusively implicated in not only witnessing the fabricated UFO sightings, but assisting in the making of some of the photographs. His name is Hank Boland. 
Through developing a close friendship to Ed Walters as a band member at Gulf Breeze High School, Hank was talked into assisting with this hoax. I must conclude through my meeting Hank and formulating a first impression that he probably did not engage in the hoax except to commit a practical joke. Candidly, I believe Ed Walters himself, being of the personality he is, initiated this as a very big joke. Soon, however, the greed factor prevailed, and Hank was dragged deeper into Ed Walters' ploy. Hank was not the only perpetrator. Ed's family is obviously immersed in the sightings. They, the family members, have realized how much in financial reward could be gained as the story unfolded. Where all of this will end remains to be seen. Will the publishers of the book have legal grounds to recoup monies from Ed? I doubt it. They plowed ahead to publish and reap rewards in the same vein as Ed did in writing it. Will Ed Walters ever admit to all this? I doubt it. He's in too deep and has fooled too many people. His only way to keep showing his face publicly is to keep the act going. Will the news media report the fine details of how he pulled off what he did? They will, because they must save face in the fact they were so taken in by the scheme, as were so many others. Will the MUFON investigators admit to being so wrapped up and biased in their pursuit of the story that they fell headfirst into the trap? I doubt it. Well, MUFON has to do something. MUFON is publicly standing by uh, standing by the, um, the sightings of Ed Walters and Ed Walters' claim. They agree that the model that's been found is a fake. At least Walt Andrus and the MUFON leadership believe that. The journal or the news journal rather reports that there is infighting within MUFON about the veracity of Ed Walters' claims and the authenticity of the photographs. And this is amazing that in numerous articles throughout June and July 1990, you've got, you know, front section, front page stories about arguments between different MUFON members about this UFO case. And again, this isn't the little Gulf Breeze Weekly newspaper. This is in the Pensacola newspaper. It's a it's a regular normal daily newspaper. It's pretty amazing, to be honest. On July 1st, 1990, Ed runs a an ad in the uh, the Pensacola News Journal, UFO sightings, here are the facts. And it basically runs down the basics of his story and that uh, that he's taken uh, four lie detector tests administered by three different analysts and that in every test, Walters was determined to be telling the truth. Now, Lie detector tests are are tricky and weird, and and they're they're there's a reason that you know sometimes the results are disputed. In his book, um, the Randall Report: UFOs in the '90s, UFO investigator Kevin Randall, veteran UFO investigator Kevin Randall, addressed this question of the lie detector tests. There were inconsistencies with how qualified some of the polygraph uh, analysts and administrators were. There were concerns that they hadn't been independently verified by people who weren't connected to the case in one way or another. It's it's kind of a mess just sort of procedurally. It's also a very tedious mess to, to talk through. Um, there's a link to the book uh, to to purchase the book in the show notes. It, it's a good book. I'm, I'm glad I have it. But um, it's it really is a mess. And MUFON has to do something about this. And so they say there is going to be a, a reopening of the investigation into Ed Walters's case. And they assign Florida MUFON investigators Rex Salisbury and his wife Carol Salisbury to reopen the investigation. And they are going to do an incredibly thorough job. Meanwhile, we've learned the identity of the young man who came forward. His name is Tommy Smith. Uh, his father's name is um, 
also Smith, Tommy, Thomas Smith is Tommy's father, uh, who's a lawyer in Pensacola. And um, Ed, Ed Walters is threatening to, to sue Tommy Smith. And it all, it all gets, gets to be a little, bit, uh, a little bit heated in terms of the rhetoric. The MUFON Symposium does come to Gulf Breeze in July, the first week of July of 1990. Ed and Francis Walters are named Investigators of the Year. And according to Bill DiPaolo in the News Journal, quote, in an emotional speech Saturday, Ed and Francis Walters insisted they have seen unidentified flying objects and that, quote, everything is being twisted by the debunkers. But once the symposium is gone and everything dies down, Mayor Ed Gray is back in the newspaper. Actually, this is an Associated Press report, not just the local newspaper. Ed Gray wants the UFO fame to end. He wants the UFOs out of Gulf Breeze. He's tired of what it is doing to the city. He's tired of this type of publicity coming to his town. With the summer over in 1990, Ed Walters turns to other things. In September, he announces he is running for... Gulf Breeze City Council. And he denies that he is doing this to sort of capitalize on his UFO success. He, he says he's been on the planning board. He's eminently qualified for this position, he says. In October, during a candidate forum for the city council, it's clear that Ed's status as a UFO experiencer and, and a, a very public, well-traveled, well <laughs> well-exposed experiencer is going to be a factor in people's thinking. This is from the October 19th, 1990 edition of the News Journal. Council candidate Ed Walters, who authored a book on alleged UFO sightings in Gulf Breeze, was asked if he thinks UFO sightings are good for the city's image. I sit here before you not as a UFO witness, but as a qualified candidate, said Walters. UFOs have nothing to do with city business. The thing is, it's been well documented how much you know money, and, and there's news stories about the business and the money that the MUFON convention brought to the area. So UFOs do have something to do with the city business. Uh, it's tourism dollars. It's crowds. It's it's a news thing. So for Walters to say it has nothing to do with city business is a little, uh, I'm not going to say disingenuous. It's a, it's a little maybe naive or blind to the issues that are going on. Anyway, while Ed has been running for city council, Rex and Carol Salisbury have been investigating. And in the Saturday, October 27th, 1990 issue of the Pensacola News Journal, front page story by Craig Myers, headline, Investigators Doubt UFO Author. Two investigators for the Mutual UFO Network said Friday they believe Gulf Breeze author Ed Walters faked some of the photos of UFOs that appear in his book. We believe that UFOs exist, said Rex and Carol Salisbury of Navarre of their study of several of Walters' photos. We entered this investigation with a natural and favorable bias toward the Walters case, but our investigation and analysis lend to the conclusion that several, if not all of the photos, are probable hoaxes. Well, that's not good, Uh, but, you know, Walt Andrus, the international director of MUFON, said, Rex, Carol, go investigate this. We need to get the bottom of it. The reputation of MUFON is at stake. So what did Andrus have to say to this? I don't know how they arrived at that decision. It's certainly premature. He has no business talking to reporters. It has never been cleared through here. He can't make representations for this organization. Andrus goes on to say that uh, that Tommy Smith 
can't prove any of his statements and their outlandish lies and that the model was hidden in the house by somebody who wants to discredit Walters. The Salisbury said that Smith's testimony and the model contributed to their conclusions, but they had a mountain of photographic analysis that led them to believe that this does not this does not all add up. And so MUFON members are are split over this. Bruce Maccabee, the the photo uh, photo analyst who was, let's be fair, was paid for his analysis in the uh, the UFO sightings at Gulf Breeze book. He has not changed his mind. But Mufon's response to this, uh, let's let's look at the words of uh, of Jim Mosley for his take on what happened. Apparently, the Salisburys didn't understand their marching orders from international headquarters. They conducted a careful and apparently objective investigation of Ed's claims, and their interim report was very negative. Among other things, they interviewed one of the Walters' neighbors, who told them that from about 4.30 to 6.30 p.m. on November 11, 1987, he and two local salespeople were in the front yard negotiating some work to be done. The area where Ed's blue-beaming UFO was supposed to be lurking was in plain view the entire time. None of the three saw a UFO, or even Ed with his trusty Polaroid in hand. In short order, the Salisburys were booted out of MUFON, and the report was tossed aside in favor of the results of another, surprise, positive review of the case. None of this did MUFON any good, but Walt weathered the storm and ruled for ten more years. As if that wasn't bad enough, come November, Ed Walters would not win his seat on the Gulf Breeze City Council. In fact, out of the nine people who ran for the four seats that were available— Walters got the lowest number of votes. But maybe that was the plan all along. In January 1991, Charles Flanagan, the Florida State Director of MUFON, wrote to the newspaper. Let's now set the record straight. Mutual UFO Network Incorporated removed Rex and Carol Salisbury from this case after they made public statements regarding their own version of the case. For unknown reasons, their version immediately preceded the Gulf Breeze City Council election on November 6, 1990, in which Ed Walters was a candidate. I mean, I suppose when you combine the UFO field and suburban city council politics, the the levels of of pettiness and self-importance really are off the charts. So were the Salisburys releasing information about their case to the news to ensure that you know, sort of an October surprise thing, sort of the saddest October surprise thing ever, that Walters wouldn't get elected? Probably not. It sounds like they actually did pretty solid work. But Flanagan points out that, you know, his people at MUFON are doing the real investigation, which is the one Mosley referred to that will ultimately support Walters's position. And there, things kind of stand for a while. There would continue to be Lots of UFO sightings in the Florida Panhandle, around Pensacola, Gulf Breeze, parts of Alabama, throughout the early 90s. Into 1993, there are waves of sightings. And whenever there are waves of sightings, the Ed Walters case gets brought up, the controversy gets brought up. Even today, within the UFO field, there are people who staunchly support Ed Walters' claims. There are people who just as staunchly oppose Ed Walters' claims. I am kind of in the position of saying I think Ed Walters's claims are not entirely plausible. I think the Salisbury's sort of investigation of of the the photos and and I'm providing links to things that will hopefully help you um, 
find these things and, and understand these things a little bit uh, more than my sort of compact description of them here does. I think those are those are solid investigations they did. However, I don't think that invalidates all of the sightings that have gone on in that region from 1987 through the early 1990s. And you know, there's no reason why it should discount those. It isn't an, an he wasn't hoaxing the entire region. He was, if he was hoaxing anything, he was hoaxing these specific photographs. We should be careful not to let the actions of one individual or the alleged actions of one individual color our perception of every witness who might have seen or experienced something. And so that's Gulf Breeze, the investigation. Now, there's a lot here that I didn't necessarily talk about in a lot of depth. There's a lot of very, in my opinion, confusing stuff about the photographs and the analysis. There were other young people who came forward with lots of stories about how Ed Walters was a practical joker from way back. There was the ghost photo. There were other things. He's he's a joker. And I don't know. I think uh, I think the mayor's comments kind of ring true. This was a practical joke that kind of got out of hand. And then the profit motive for everybody, not just Ed and his family, but for the publishers, for TV stations, that takes over. Before we end this segment of the Gulf Breeze sightings experience on The Saucer Life, I do want to mention some things. Uh, Ed Walters did appear on Inside Edition. I was not able to find that clip. He also appeared, and, and the case was covered on two separate episodes of Unsolved Mysteries, including the very first episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Now, if you go to Tubi or you go to Peacock and you look up season one, episode one of Unsolved Mysteries, it does not have the Gulf Breeze sightings there. And I sort of sort of put this out on Twitter, gosh, about six weeks ago when I was working on this. And the consensus was from several people that a lot of those early episodes of Unsolved Mysteries have lots of edits done to them, almost like I think John E. L. Tenney um, sort of pointed out that they seem like they might have been almost reconstructed from surviving footage that was around like the original episodes had been junked and then had to be sort of reconstructed once NBC or whoever realized there was a rerun market for things that really were timely television. These are sort of current events things. When you're asking people to write in with clues – you don't expect there to be a lot of rewatch value to it. But it's those of us who grew up at the time, remember, Unsolved Mysteries was absolutely amazing. So I am aware that he was on those TV shows, but um, I was not able to source those. So I said there's one more Gulf Breeze sightings episode coming, and there is because Ed Walters didn't stop. In 1994, he published a book with Francis called UFO Abductions in Gulf Breeze, The Amazing True Story of UFOs and the Real Visitors from Outer Space with Authenticated Photos. And then in 1997, along with Bruce McAbee, Walters wrote, UFOs are real. Here's the proof. So more Ed Wood, not Ed Wood. Oh my gosh. There's a, um, there is a Freudian slip and a half, isn't it? More Ed Walters next time. And then there was something else in the news in 1990 that I didn't mention. Six people from the army came to Gulf Breeze for very strange reasons. And we're going to be covering that after we're done with the Gulf Breeze sightings. It is the, the late summer and autumn of Gulf Breeze. And if you enjoy it, I am so happy. If you don't enjoy it, It'll be over at some point, so don't worry about it. It was either this or like a six-hour episode that 
meant a gap of a month while I put it together. So this is what we're doing right now. And then we'll get to the Exeter, New Hampshire UFO sightings and other fun stuff to round out the rest of 2022. All right. Thanks for listening. Uh, Get your feedback in. We'll be doing, like I said, a big sort of bumper feedback thing at some point after we're done with this as as a little sort of extra. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you.